Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. This month, we're celebrating Filipino Heritage Month, and with us today is Cassandra Salcedo. Full-time MBA class of 21, you're a relatively new alumna. Welcome to the family, <laughs> again. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Cassandra, you're currently a product marketing senior lead at Salesforce. I just saw a photo of you presenting at uh, Dreamforce, which is really cool. It's like one of my favorite parties in the world. Sorry, uh, conferences in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and I got a chance to go to it actually um, when I was an MBA. It was like one of the coolest privileges to have, obviously, classmates that work at Salesforce and get that invite. But yeah, uh, welcome to the podcast, Cassandra. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be here. I'm happy to celebrate Filipino History Month this month. So, you know, to start us off, we'd love to learn more about you. Can you tell us your origin story, where you're from and where you grew up? Sure. So I am a proud first-generation Filipina-American. My parents are actually from smaller towns in the Philippines called Abondo and Laguna, where they actually met in med school in the Philippines. And at the time of their graduation was actually when there was martial law happening there. And so it was a difficult time for, for them and their families. And so wow. in 1986... They, like many immigrants, uh, were seeking the American dream. And I still remember my dad always talks about how he would always wish upon a star in living in the United States. And so they packed up their things. They brought a suitcase. They brought a black and white TV, nothing more. And they moved to Seattle, where they stayed with one of my relatives. And then they eventually settled down in New Jersey, where they live today. I would say they frequently told me about all the struggles that they faced when they arrived here, like a lot of people do. You know, my dad worked at Burger King. <laughs> my mom was a, a secretary. And today they are successful doctors in the U.S. after a lot of hard work. Uh, and so when I think about my origin story, I really think back to this because really hearing about some of the struggles that, that they had when they first moved here and all of the opportunities it makes me really appreciative and it's probably one of my biggest motivators for making them proud and, and making it feel like their journey over here was worth it. So I would say that's one of the biggest things about my origin story that propels me and helps me grow and appreciate all the different experiences that I've had throughout my 33 years of life. <laughs> <laughs> First off, it's kind of crazy to go from doctor to Burger King to doctor. My my mom worked at Burger King too. I don't know what it is about Asians and Burger King, but <laughs> my Burger King was our jam back in the day. You know, what kind of medicine did your parents practice? My dad's a pediatrician and my mom is an internist. So oh, wow. uh, it was funny because growing up, it was like I had a doctor my whole life from when I was a child. I never had to go get <laughs> physicals. And now I actually do have a doctor, but I, <laughs> I still go to them for Actually, me and my partner, we both seek medical advice to this day from my parents. That's amazing. So you were born in the Philippines or? I was born, first generation born in the United States. So they had me in New Jersey. I see. So that's where I grew up most of my life. and But uh, since then have moved to the West Coast. I see, I see. And growing up, I noticed you did not go into the medical field. 
Uh, so <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. Huh? Yeah. By the way, I do have to read this for audience because like, I love your about me on LinkedIn. It says, how does an auditor transition to a commercial banker, to a nonprofit strategist, to a tech product marketer? It sounds like, you know, a Netflix preview. The answer is storytelling. So now we have to hear your story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I definitely felt a lot of pressure to become a doctor growing up. I feel like it's somewhat common in a lot of Asian households. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor pretty early on. And so I definitely felt that societal pressure to become one and be, I would say, a little bit more on the risk-averse side, especially early on in my career. So that's why my very first job was accounting, a <laughs> public accountant at a big four company in New York City. I did the whole CPA thing. I went through all of that, later pivoted to multiple other functions, but I would say I'm definitely kind of the adventure type. Um, at every experience, it brings new perspectives. It brings new skills and you realize different things and you realize you have different needs at different times. So while I did start my first job in public accounting, I learned a lot. Like I learned how to communicate with clients. I learned how to deal with busy season for tight deadlines. And I met a lot of great people one of which is my current partner. And I went to a couple of weddings from people I had met at my very first job. And so from there, I just started to reflect on some of the different things I was wanting at that time. So when I was working in public accounting, I really wanted to explore this idea of social impact, really driven by my parents' origin story. Yeah. So I was saying, okay, now I'm working in one of the, I don't know, most traditional desk jobs in accounting in New York City. And how can I have some type of social fulfillment to feel like I'm giving back to to my parents' story. So I started going to all these career fairs. I went to endless coffee chats and then discover, and I was like, okay, well, what if I could mix social impact with my experience in financial services? So that led me down to my first experience in social enterprise, which was a, a microfinance fellowship. So I did that in Ecuador and Peru. I got to basically travel to the most remote parts that most people in the world have not heard of in Ecuador and Peru and meet people from these regions and hear their stories about what they're using their loans for and how they're using it to propel them forward and got to tell those stories through different blogs, through different interviews that the organization I was working for could do. So it's it's those experiences that really just helped me appreciate and humbled me a little bit of how open-minded and different people's careers past could be and gives me different perspectives because even though I'm working in product marketing now, it's like, you know, if you were to ask me my my dream job, I'd say it it would probably change each year because sometimes it is intimidating and makes me question because I think, you know, sometimes a lot of people you meet have one passion, you know, I am going to be a investment baker, I'm going to be a doctor or so-and-so, but I've never felt like I had that one specific thing. For me, I'm more about how do I take each experience? How do I learn from each experience? And how do I meet people in each of those that will help me get and figure out what I want to do next? And so I see career as more of an adventure and an opportunity versus more of like a stringent career path where you just kind of go through one specific industry or one, which is great. And I admire all the people who do that. Yeah. But one thing I did realize is that that just probably isn't 
for me. Not right now, maybe one day, but not right now. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I'm with you there. My wife is a pediatrician as well, and we're totally different. You know, it's, it's, she loves, you know, being a physician and I can't stick to the same thing for 10 years, you know? Uh, So I, I totally get that, but I'm really curious, you know, is there anything, if you think back to your childhood or your Filipino upbringing that inspired that, that, that sense of adventure, I guess, or that restlessness, right? Uh, And, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Is there anything you know, growing up traditionally, did you first, first off, did you grow up traditionally in a Filipino kind of cultural household? I would say I did, except for the the language part. (laughs) (laughs) One of the biggest things, because I was trying to assimilate at the time when my parents moved and there weren't a lot of Filipinos in the community in New Jersey where I grew up. Yeah. So I definitely tried to assimilate and one of them still on my bucket list to achieve one day is to learn Tagalog the language in the Philippines, because to this day, my Spanish definitely outdoes my Tagalog, which is, <laughs> does not serve me well when I visit family in, in the Philippines and say that I'm Philippine-American. But I know it's something that I'll eventually get to, and it's something that's on my mind. But to answer your question, I would say, I don't know if there was one specific moment, but I think that because I grew up in that I would say more traditional household. Risk was not necessarily encouraged. I'd say just, you know, going down the safe path, making sure you're stable. That probably at one point, whether I realized it just now or not, made me think, oh, should maybe it's time to take more risks and, you know, do something different. And, And that from ever since I made that first leap out of accounting into a social enterprise, which by the way, was an unpaid fellowship. So I remember having the conversation with my family. By the way, um, you moved <laughs> from the Philippines and you have this whole successful American dream story. And I'm about to give up my salary at in accounting to go to a remote region in Latin America where I don't know <laughs> a single person for an unpaid fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was definitely the first dipping my toes into wanting to experience this change. But I think just the variety of people that I've had the opportunity to meet, not just through that experience, but even just through the MBA, it inspires you. There's so many different career paths. There's so many different people you can meet in different objectives. It's not just one specific way. How did your parents take that initially? Did they take it well? (laughs) Or Because I mean, it's, I, I guess, let me give some context to my question because, you know, part of it is I'm a first generation American immigrant as well. When I was born, I think I'm 1.5 because I was born in China, but I moved here when I was uh, very young. It sounds like there's always like two types of Asian parents, right? <laughs> that that <laughs> we have either they're, you know, they moved to the US because they've been so oppressed right by their home country that they're a little bit more open-minded and much more liberal in how they raise their kids. And then there's just the steadfast, you know, we left that oppression, but we're still, you know, we were raised a certain way, so we're going to continue raising our kids that way. Yeah, I'm curious what your parents were like. Yeah, when I was younger, I was definitely in a more, at least relative to my peers, in a more strict household, which is looking back at the time, I didn't necessarily appreciate it, but now I'm happy that they were 
you know, they were very strict. Education was always the, the top priority. And I'd say they definitely became more open-minded when I went to college and afterwards. And when I told them about, I think a lot of times the aesthetics of things always, always helps. And it's all about framing yeah, and who, knowing your audience. So if there's one thing in marketing, it's like how you frame it and knowing your audience. So the way that I actually framed my fellowship was I framed it as, you know, this premier fellowship opportunity. I didn't say how I phrased it to you just before of I was going to the middle of nowhere, not knowing anyone, taking an unpaid fellowship. (laughs) (laughs) Of course not, yeah. (laughs) And it was selective. So, you know, I had to go through the whole application process. I framed it as an opportunity to hone in on my business Spanish skills, to get the international experience and Mm. honed in on their story. And I think when I explained to them this, the reason why I'm motivated to this is because I was inspired by your story yeah. and how can I actually give back and pursue this different career path. So I would say they were supportive and probably surprised because I had just passed the CPA and they're like, you just spent the whole summer studying for this and now you're going <laughs> to... So nothing goes to waste though. <laughs> no, nothing goes to waste. Absolutely not. Um, I think... All the interviews I've done, I hear stories where there's so many pivots and at the time it feels like it's disconnected, right? It's fragmented, but everything builds upon each other and, you know, in the end it all makes sense. <laughs> and that, that's what I've experienced so far at least. That's really cool. And I say that because even kind of you sharing that story, I think what's important and what I hear from it is, is not the marketing portion, but the, the willingness to communicate with your parents. And that's something, you know, I feel like it's, it's a mixed bag for a lot of first-generation immigrants, right? Because they grew up in a different country, in a different culture, a different language, right? And here we are growing up in this culture, in this country, in this language. And from my experience, at least, I've seen other friends and whatnots, um, there's always this huge disconnect and misunderstanding, right, between our parents' generation and our generation. I think it's really cool that you're able to overcome that by communicating in a way that your parents understood. I think that's something important for people to hear, <laughs> actually. Because <laughs> I, I, to this day, I still have first-generation friends that really struggle connecting with their parents. And I think part of it's they're, they're not putting themselves in their parents' shoes, right? And that's, that's something that's really important. So kind of on that note, since we're on the topic of being Filipina, uh, what does it mean to be Filipina to you personally and how has it influenced your life? Sure. Well, to me, when I think about being Filipina, of course, I can't help but think about my family um, and some of the personal experiences that I've learned from each of them. So I still remember my very first trip to the Philippines. And before that, my parents had always talked about their family and I was at the time living in New Jersey, so I didn't actually know or had the opportunity to meet any of my cousins or anyone in the Philippines yet. But when I went to the Philippines and I went to my grandmother's house where all on my dad's side in Laguna, where all of my cousins and aunts and uncles, they all live in the same complex. Yeah. And growing up as an only child, I still remember like seeing, walking into that household just being overjoyed with how much happiness and familial vibes 
it was a pretty small household for um, a lot of people to be living in. And there wasn't much, but I remember meeting my cousins. I have, I have a lot of them, especially on my dad's side. And meeting my family, and they were all just gathered around, hanging and enjoying each other's company. And I just remember having the time of my life and playing with them. And really what they taught me in that moment was, you know, because at the time I would say in New Jersey, I, I was fortunate. I had a lot of like physical things. And then to go over there and see, there wasn't a lot of things, but that what they had was they had the importance of each other. Yeah. And they had this ability to connect with each other and celebrate. And they had so many of them and they built up this whole community. We actually have a family, it doesn't exist anymore today, but there's a family gas station hmm. uh, that was called the Salcedo Gas Station. And so it was just all around that gas station, there was members of my family. And to see so many people in my family that I had never met before, not really having a lot of things and enjoying life and just laughing with each other, that's when I think it sparked for me my appreciation for uh, all the sacrifices that my parents had. And there's this tradition in the U.S. where it's called the Balak buy-in box, where you basically send over a lot of gifts to your family back home in the Philippines. And so um, a couple times a year, my family and I, we put together this Balak buy-in box. There's a bunch of companies that specialize in this, in this box where you send things over. <laughs> I actually still remember even when I would go to the Philippines, I would see my cousins wearing all the clothes and the the things passed down from the bullock buying boxes that I gave. <laughs> what what is it called? Uh, a bullock buying box, and bullock buying refers to returning to one's country. Huh, that's cool. One of the things I learned about the Philippines and Filipinos is that it has a strong culture. Right, the Philippines have a strong culture of home cooking, of like you're saying, family meals, right, uh, eating together. And so one of the rumors I heard was, you know, if you visit the Philippines, it's really hard to find good restaurants uh, serving Filipino food because few people go out to eat Filipino food because they're, you know, they're, <laughs> they're, their grandmas or moms like or dads cook it so well, right? At home, it's, they just don't, it doesn't make any sense to go out and eat it. I was just recently there. And luckily, as a tourist, they do have some really amazing Filipino restaurants. <laughs> uh, very high end, very expensive. It was amazing. And so, I, sorry, roundabout way of asking, what are some of your favorite Filipino foods? Ooh. Dishes. Uh, I would say my, uh, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to try this when you were in the Philippines, but it, because it, I don't know if I've ever had this at a restaurant, but Sinigang. Basically, it's a stew with a bunch of vegetables, and then I usually have it over rice. But my mom makes an incredible sinigang. In fact, I'm actually home visiting this weekend, and she made it yesterday because it's one of my one of my favorites. I would also say another favorite for breakfast is tapsilog. Oh yeah, have you, did you have that? When you, oh yeah. So and there's multiple types of Filipino breakfast, and tapsilog is the one with the tapa type of meat with the fried egg and rice, garlic rice, of course. Mm -hmm. Filipinos love their garlic. So garlic is probably one of the main ingredients. And mangoes is always well, actually. I have memories of when I was growing up where my friends would come over my house and they would look through my pantry and my fridge. And I remember one specific friend said, 
why do you have so many different types of mangoes in your house? You have dried mangoes, <laughs> mango fruits, mango candy, mango juice, <laughs> mango ice cream. And I, I mean, I, the mangoes are so good in the Philippines. And I know mangoes are good in a lot of parts of the world, but I, I consider that a, a classic flavor as well. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I... It was funny. I I think I was mentioning this to you before the call. Um, I went to Manila for the first time back in June, and I absolutely loved it. I was very unfortunate that I only had enough time to be in Manila and you know not go anywhere else. But I remember landing. You know, it's fifteen hour flight. Uh, sat next to this Filipino guy that moved to LA, lives in LA. To talk to him for like five hours uh, about his family and like his, his business here and his property in the Philippines. But I got some recommendations from him. But when I landed, I unfortunately stayed in BGC in Bonifacio, you know, global city. And I say unfortunately because I got picked up from the airport. It was like 8 p.m. You know, I'd just been on a plane for 15 hours that where I barely slept. I was a little bit grumpy. And I was so excited to just go out and find some Filipino street food, you know, just <laughs> some like authentic local food. But here I am in BGC, and if anyone's ever been to BGC, it is America. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I got walk outside, there's Shake Shack, there's Din Tai Fong, there's like, there's all these restaurants basically that I, I have here, you know, a mile away from me. And I was so disappointed. And I just, we just kept walking down this uh, pedestrian uh, walk, which is beautiful, you know. But it's just all these Americanized restaurants, right? And finally, we found this restaurant called Manam. And uh, it's a Filipino restaurant. And I finally got a taste of some, you know, Filipino food in the Philippines. <laughs> Which Did you have a balut? I did. Yeah. I think I ordered half the menu because <laughs> I just wanted to try everything. And we, yeah, basically for... For two days, I that's I just went to as many Filipino restaurants as I could. <laughs> um, you know that first trip that you mentioned. How old were you when you went to the Philippines for the first time? Oh, I must have been in second or third grade. Eight or nine years old. That's uh, for, for your first time. Wow, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> it's uh, it makes sense. I mean, you remember it a lot better. And how often do you go back to the Philippines? I try to go back every, my, my parents go back every year, uh, especially with people getting a lot older. Yeah. I try to go back every couple of years. I hope to go in the next year or so because there, there are so many different family members and people there. But actually one of the things on my life list is to spend significant, instead of going on just like a vacation trip, I'd like to actually spend a decent amount of time there. Yeah. And actually, you know, pick up the language and actually have the chance to get to know my family members outside of just a quick, a quick visit. So it's on one of my bucket list items to achieve in the coming years. But the timing of that is still TBD. But I definitely want to accomplish that. Well, let's uh, switch topics a little bit. Love to go back to your career. And just I'm really curious, you know, what brought you to Haas? And, and you know, on the path for MBA? It was a long journey, I would say, in terms of getting there because I had always had thought about getting an MBA 
So I knew it was one of those things where I uh, had it on my mind. So I've always kept in touch with a lot of people and did a lot of research. And the timing of it was I wanted to also make sure that I had enough work experience and got the most out of it going into it. So after working it first in big four accounting and then afterwards in social enterprise and commercial banking, I studied for the GMAT for I, quite a long time. It took me a while to not only take the GMAT, but just to perfect my essays. And it makes you ponder questions like, what is your story? Yeah, And you know, like feeling this overwhelming pressure to get my story right. And, you know, why MBA? And yeah. I would say I did so much personal reflection, answering those questions and getting ready and putting together application. Probably it was a couple of years that I actually spent preparing for it before I actually went through with it. I was supposed to, I initially was planning to get it and go into social impact. And Haas was always my first choice because I knew from the beginning that I wanted a school that appreciated diverse perspectives and didn't necessarily have one specific thing. I remember very vividly at the first Haas info session I went to and there was a slide there that showed the career paths that people at Haas go into post-graduation. Yeah. And of course there was, you know, the traditional paths of consulting, banking, consulting, banking, tech, but, but it was actually quite a linear graph across different industries. I felt like a lot of the other schools, it was, you know, primarily one. But that graph actually really stood out to me because I, I wanted a school that did that. And I also wanted a school that was small enough to build a community. Uh, another litmus test that I did was the number of people that responded to me cold on LinkedIn. <laughs> mm. I actually received a 100% response rate from all of the Haas alumni that I cold messaged on LinkedIn, which I thought was a, a telling sign of the community and people actually wanting to give back and, and share their experiences out the goodness of their heart and just wanting to help. Yep. First time I actually stepped on campus for one of their diversity days, for one of their weekends, for a, an event, I just remember feeling overwhelmingly positive when I stepped foot into that campus and getting this feeling. Yeah. So it was always my number one choice. I was I was waitlisted initially, so I wasn't sure if it was going to work out for me. But I definitely am so glad that it ultimately ended up working out. No, that's a great litmus test because that's that's the one thing we hear over and over again through the years I've been doing this podcast, um, especially younger alumni like us, where you know we had just been through the application process pretty recently and whatnot, and and talking to people on campus and everybody said, you know, whenever we reach out to somebody, you know, people respond, uh, people give us the time of day, even though we have not been accepted to the school yet. Whereas a lot of other schools, it was like, you know, until you're accepted, like they're not going to talk to you or something like that. It, it's so, so great to hear that, you know, that's still true. <laughs> Definitely. So for any perspective, yeah, for any perspective students, please reach out to people. <laughs> <laughs> Those me those cold LinkedIn messages where things always lead to another and a lot of my jobs and a lot of opportunities was a result of some of the cold LinkedIn messages that you get of people just willing to help, not just at Haas, but in general. I think if you're targeted enough and specific enough, personal enough in your initial, whatever the character limit is for you to send that message, yeah, you can definitely uh, achieve great things and people are willing to help. 
So I'm going to ask you a potentially tough question, which is, you know, you mentioned storytelling in your LinkedIn. I would love to hear, you know, what is a story now in the sense that, you know, you started out as an auditor, right? You went into nonprofit, you went into commercial banking. What is a story arc of your life and career path now and where do you see it leading you? Yeah, I love that question. And the first phrase that always comes to mind is the journey is a reward. And when I think of a story, and especially as it relates to life or career, it's always kind of zigzagged and it doesn't necessarily mean it's always up and down. Of course, there's going to be highs and lows. And right now, I would say I'm just getting started on the beginning of, of the story. I mean, I know I've been in 33 years of life at this point, but I, I know that there's a lot still to look forward to. Um, and of course, there's going to be challenges ahead and and different type of zigzags and highs and lows. But where I see myself going is actually one of the things that made me reflect on a similar, it's not the exact same question, but I recently watched a Netflix documentary on the centurions and how to live until you're 100. And it got me thinking about certain questions like, you know, when I'm older, what do I want to have accomplished in my story, in, in my life? What are those things I want to look back on and say, you know, I accomplished this and I accomplished that. When you hear from people who live for that long or just honestly anyone who is older than me, the insights that they have, actually, it's funny because I recently gave my parents a book to fill out to help them answer some of these questions. So I have it to <laughs> future reference. But the stories that people tell when they're older, you never hear someone say, oh, that time that I built that PowerPoint presentation or that time I built that Excel model or you know, that's, it's never those moments that, you know, people remember in the stories. It's always the more human moments of a story. And those building that, to your point of why you started this whole podcast of building that, that different connection with people. So for me, I would say the story is there's still so many people to meet. There's so many places to go. There's a lot of challenges left to overcome. I don't even necessarily know what those are yet, but just like life, I'll, I'll figure it out when it comes and then have to pivot accordingly. And I would say those human moments are the ones. And I try to not forget some of those things when I am stressed on the little things about work. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, when I'm, when I'm older, is this something that is going to have an impact? And if, if I think I'm going to say yes, and I try to prioritize life according to that as well, because I think there can be, especially in America, a lot of pressure to especially, you know, after coming from the MBA and pay and making the investment to have this sole focus on, you know, what's quote unquote a successful career path. Yeah. But everyone's success is defined differently. And it's not just about career path. It's outside of that. And even from the career, you can take away things that lead you to think about things that are non-career related. So always keeping that in mind and prioritizing accordingly because there's always going to be stresses of life, but how you overcome them and those moments that bring you challenges, tears, crafts, any emotion are the ones that, that you remember. I love it. I'm, I'm curious, you know, what kind of people would you like to meet? Maybe some listeners could reach out if you happen to have an idea. Of what, what kind of people would you like to meet, you know, for, for your path going forward? 
I always love meeting people who have the almost the opposite and ex- any type of extreme difference in background or perspective that I have in order to understand it more. I think it. one of the biggest takeaways from the MBA, one that I, I didn't an- even anticipate to come away with was I, you know, people always talked about the power of the network that in the power of the people you meet at the MBA. But I actually, before Haas, didn't know personally a lot of people from the military background. Yeah. And now I have so many close friends who went through so many different experiences around the world. And I got to ask all the questions that, you know, for me were quote unquote silly questions, but it forced me to understand and hear new perspectives and understand different types of challenges that people overcome because yeah. ones that I don't, I only know my story and the people I talk to. And when you meet not just people from the military, but there are two people who are close friends now from Kazakhstan in my class. Oh, wow. And I had never knew any single person from Kazakhstan. And then now I have two friends from Kazakhstan. And just getting to ask questions about what was it like growing up and what's different. One of the things that I did that I, I think I would say I was most proud about from my time at Haas was when COVID hit, similar to how you started this podcast, my way of doing that was going on walks. Mm. With My goal was to go on a walk with almost as many people as I could from my class. Wow. And I mean, of course, it was limiting to people who ended up staying in the barrier, but I did do a couple of phone calls with people. Yeah. But it's this this idea of just curiosity because I wanted to stay connected and I just wanted to understand people's stories. There was no agenda. And I literally took the spreadsheet that they sent us during week zero of all of our names. Yeah. And I basically just did kind of like a a system where I would reach out to different people and almost every day or every other, most days during the week, I would go on a, a walk with a different person because it was, wow. it was free. It was, yeah an easy way to just <laughs> talk to someone. It got ex got me out of the house during the pandemic. Yeah. Luckily we were in Berkeley where the weather cooperated. So yeah, I got to hear some pretty crazy personal stories and my perspectives completely changed from talking to people after doing that. I'm surprised. Is this like a continuing tradition? I feel like you should start like a Haas Walks organization where this is just like a thing, you know, it, it makes so much sense. <laughs> you you got to pass this knowledge on. Like. Yeah, I I do it in a different way now. Although I do have several Hossies who live <laughs> within, I would say, a couple blocks from me. So it actually is easy. And I do still go on walks with some people. It's awesome. But yeah, I would say that's a, it's a, it's an easy way to do it. And to this day, because my class started 2019 and then we were impacted by pandemic in 2020. Yeah. Uh, we were given the opportunity for a COVID relief fund. So our class was given money to organize different events in the different hubs okay. for supporting building community. And so being in the barrier where a lot of Hossies reside, I've had the opportunity to organize a lot of those events. And so at those events, it's nice to still keep that contact and community in place, which in talking to other classes, it doesn't seem as strong. So I'm grateful for that opportunity that the the school did provide that because it, it keeps a lot of us close and does give the opportunity because I still remember going to some events and I'd 
we were still a relatively small class size. And some people would say, oh, I never knew this person was in our class still. So it still, it still happens once in a while. But it does give people to reconnect with new people when they want to. Love it. On the topic of community, kind of bring us back to Filipino culture. Um, you know, the Filipino diaspora is vast, uh, with many Filipinos living abroad. I'm really curious how your family or how you yourself, how do you think Filipino culture is preserved within your family or how you look to preserve it as you build your own, you know, community and family in the future? Yeah, I, of course, there's a lot of ways to preserve through things like food and <laughs> things like um, a lot of Filipino families have, you know, karaoke. It, it is it is funny because <laughs> some of the career paths, I think my parents, outside of being a doctor, my parents probably would have been equally as satisfied if I became a famous singer. <laughs> <laughs> but outside of, I would say, food um, and outside of, Things like the fun traditions like karaoke and things. And one of my goals is language as well. But keeping the the memories of people in my family. And we actually, my dad actually recently did a, an exercise of the family tree. Oh, wow. Where you can he, he trace it back all the way. But looking at that family tree and seeing how different people came from different survive different things. I mean, even going back to, you know, some of the wars that happened in the past and some of those crazy experiences that my parents had documented, I would say always remembering one of the things I, I'm cognizant of for my future family is making sure that they're aware of where the family started and the history of the Philippines. Because I do worry that as time goes on, there will be less and less of it preserved, but I know I want to make a conscious effort to to infuse it, at least on the educational component and probably just frequent visits back, making sure that people understand and meet the different family members at that point, whether it's first cousins, second, third, yeah, anything, the opportunity to have some type of appreciation for the culture, for our specific family and some of the values that my parents raised me with. That's a great answer. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, is there anything else that you want to talk about, Cassandra, that I did not ask you? I would say that given my, when you asked me that question about the, the story and you, in the beginning, you read my LinkedIn post about the different career paths and how I talked a little bit about how I liked being more of the adventurer type. One thing when I thought about how proud I was for different moments, one of the things that stood out to me was on the transition. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I think nowadays, I think it's getting better, but a lot of companies, and I personally struggled with this, and I have classmates who who still do as well, is on the, making transitions and giving people opportunities and exploring different type of mindsets. So as an example, I know like especially some of the bigger companies can be a little bit more stringent. They want a certain pedigree from a certain school. They want them to have all of XYZ experience. But if there's one thing I, I learned from just working with so many different people and so many different types of personalities, if you have somebody who has strong work ethic, is passionate and wants to learn and wants the job, 
I would hire that person any day over someone who had more of the technical skills on their resume and almost like a check the box. I struggled with this a lot, which is actually one of the reasons why I ended up going to business school because making the career transitions, you know, it was a popular question that came up. And I do understand the the reasons for those, but I just wanted to share that because I, I know that people struggle. I've talked, done so many coffee chats with people and how did you transition from this to this without that experience and prior experience. But I'm hopeful that, that going forward, people start to realize the the value in people's diversity of experiences and life experiences and not necessarily just that they're coming from that industry that you want, the function that you want, have the certification that you want. Encourage people to think bigger about maybe that person grew up in a completely different environment and can, while it might not be directly related, it's definitely related and it will have impact in in showing your work because those are the people who I work with when I hear their stories and, and what motivates them. Those are the people I love working with most. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, resonates very well with our Haas values, right? <laughs> and of being student always and beyond yourself. And um, I don't think there's one for work ethic, but there should be one. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I couldn't, I really couldn't agree more. You know, as you bring up that story of, of yourself, I, I went through the exact same thing. And it's actually the same values that I've talked to my wife about wanting to impart on our kids uh, above anything else is, you know, strong work ethic, uh, curiosity, right? Like willingness to learn and being compassionate, being caring, being beyond yourself. Uh, I think if you have those three traits, you will figure anything out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So all goes back to the Haas values. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really good message to share to end off things. Well, thank you so much, Cassandra, for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure having you. Awesome. Thanks so much, Sean. Happy to be here. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. And there you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. One Haas Podcast is a production of the Haas School of Business and produced by University FM. Until next time, go Bears.